This is the What Matters Most podcast. A 100% listener-supported program. And now, here is your host, Paul Samuel Dolman. Welcome back to What Matters Most. Hey, thank you, everybody all over the world who tunes in. What a beautiful family. One of my favorite favorite authors and truth tellers is back on the show. He's been coming on for a couple of years. I was just telling him before we came on, I have learned so much from this person and I'm not just saying it because he's on the show. I read insatiably. I listen. I'm an addict for information and understanding, but time and time again, I just learn new things. And his latest book, The Midnight Kingdom, A History of Power, Paranoia, and the Coming Crisis, just blew my mind. And I want to say, I didn't say this to you, the guest who's listening, reminded me a lot of the work of Howard Zinn, where I was like, holy God, this is this is great information. Uh, he's written another incredible book called The American Rule. He also is the host of the Muckrake Podcast. Welcome back, my brother in light and truth, Mr. Jared H. Sexton. Thanks for coming on. Oh, Paul, you're so kind. It's It's great to do this again. I want to just start with the now. Uh, Jared, how do you view our current moment right now, where we are? I know this is going to surprise you and your listeners. Things are weird. Uh, we're 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 in the middle of a pretty significant crossroads, I believe, uh, in terms of uh, where we're going and where we've been. Uh, we we are watching the decline of the American hegemonic structure. Uh, we are in the middle of this new sort of order struggling to be born. Uh, it's a little bit unclear. It feels a lot like, um, you know, the lead up into World War One or the lead up into World War Two. these moments where the way that the world feels and the way that reality works, it suddenly feels as if suddenly everything is being thrown uh, and, and and is up in the air. And we're waiting to see where things are going to go. Um, it's a time of great danger, but it's also a time of great possibility. And so it is, um, you know, it's, it's all things at once, the best of times and the worst of times, right? And where would the environmental collapse and that fit into all this? Because it's not just ideological. We have real physics issues and water issues and heat issues. Yeah, and and you know that's that's one of the the things that's sort of happening uh, in in the foreground. We're looking at a great multiplier, is what it is. Um, you know, when when you start to take a look at what actual history is, material conditions, of course, are what lead to changes in the events that oftentimes we go ahead and ascribe to powerful figures or quote unquote men of history or whatever. Um, you actually look at history and you start to realize that uh, environmental factors play a huge role in all of this. And, you know, we're we're looking at uh, the climate crisis, which um, if we were a sane society, uh, we would be addressing, we would be uh, working towards figuring out. Instead, um, we are, you know, putting a foot to the pedal and, and racing toward it. We're going to see uh, territory go away. We're going to see resources dwindle. We're probably going to see millions, if not billions, of climate refugees. Uh, and as that happens, uh, current conditions, as explosive as they are, as violent as they are right now, uh, they're going to get worse. And, uh, you know, it's going to be bad enough that many of us are going to be trying to survive everything from fires to historic storms. 
But a lot of the conditions that we have in place right now, including political instability, uh, you know, uh, radicalized populations, growing authoritarianism, unless we figure these things out, unless we build, uh, you know, some firewalls, so to speak, um, those things are going to get worse. And and those conditions are going to exacerbate the the, the conditions that exist right now. Yeah, well, the way you described what we're doing I, reminds me of the end of Thelma and Louise when they go over the cliff, they hit the gas rather than trying to figure this stuff out. And history has shown us a lot of times the environment was the big cause of major changes. And what I see happening, I just barely alluded to it before we went on, reminds me of the end of the third Lord of the Rings film where that giant monolith of evil, I'll call that white supremacy, colonialism, corporate capitalism, thousands of years in the making. It's cracking. The eye is screaming and it's coming down. And of course, we got a bunch of people saying, oh, we have to make a smooth transition. Maybe we can catch it as it falls or prop it up. And I don't think that's going to happen. And that's going to lead to unprecedented opportunity or unprecedented disaster. Yeah. And, and, you know, one of the things to go ahead and, and get this thing reset, you know, for anybody who's listening to this conversation, uh, you know, w- one of the things I found writing the Midnight Kingdom, uh, and I, I went through history, I started with Rome and, and came all the way to the present. One of the things that I found was that, you know, humans are pretty predictable. Uh, we, we, we build these structures, right? We, we build these systems. And while we're doing it, you know, because all of us kind of want to be immortal. We don't really want to sit around and deal with our own mortality. Uh, we want to believe that the systems we create are going to outlast us and, and last forever. Um, you know, we're currently in an age, um, you know, if, if for those of you who are listening who study this stuff, you've probably come across, you know, these ideas of the American century or the idea that uh, we've arrived at the end of history where American style liberal capitalistic democracy or whatever you want to call it uh, would last into perpetuity. And history is also littered with uh, systems that have failed. And because they can't last forever, because the way that they are set up, particularly in order to stress division, uh, intentional inequality, uh, they reach a point in which they are no longer operable. And we are currently in a moment right now, uh, the neoliberal consensus, uh, which we can get into, uh, has created such historic inequality that the system no longer functions. Uh, there is no ability, of course, for uh, you know people who are being exploited so terribly in their jobs and in their livelihoods that they can no longer afford to buy a house in the United States of America. We have declining conditions. We have uh, lifespans that are, are are lessening. And as that way of life starts to fail, um, we're starting to watch a lot of this progress from the last century start to roll back as well. There's only a couple of ways to square the circle. Either we figure out a way to make things more fair uh, in order to even balance the system so that it can continue to lurch forward. I happen to believe that that's the answer. And then it's also going to take a redistribution of wealth and power. But that's a different thing to talk about. Or this system is going to give way to authoritarian elements that are going to force people to go to work, that is going to direct the pain from chosen in-groups to chosen out-groups, which unfortunately is what we're seeing take place. And the problem in all of this is that we are not wired to understand the threat. You know, we're we're wired to believe that the threat isn't real or maybe it's overstated and maybe it won't get here. Um, And on top of that, um, 
you know, we, we have seen over and over that the people who are responsible for covering this, for dealing with it politically, um, that they are oftentimes both part of the problem and because they are within the problem, they're incapable of seeing it. And so we're in a situation where this thing grows worse by the day. Uh, I think it will get figured out. I remain hopeful. I remain optimistic. But uh, it is a very, very serious position that we're in right now. And what surprised me that I didn't know what I was alluding to in the intro was if you go back to Rome, you have these crazy conspiracy conspiracy theories like QAnon and the Christians and the catacombs. I thought humanity's always been batshit crazy with conspiracy stuff. Yeah, we have. And, you know, that was actually one of the, the, the weird things. When I started writing The Midnight Kingdom, I actually... I actually started it thinking I was going to write a book about retelling the history of Western civilization because, you know, as as things start to get worse and as conditions worsen, we're hearing a lot of the far right and authoritarians talk about Western civilization needs to be protected. But, you know, immediately I started finding these conspiracy theories. And what I realized very quickly um, is that these conspiracy theories that we're dealing with now that have become commonplace in everyday life, they've become the main operating principle of parties like the Republican Party, is that these are lies that are used by the wealthy and the powerful to protect themselves and to redirect the anger that is rightfully theirs to their political enemies in order to keep these systems moving forward. And when they show up, particularly when they get as bad as what we're seeing now, it is a sign that we are reaching one of these crossroads, that we are reaching uh, the beginnings of something different, the beginnings of a crisis that will have to be dealt with. And um, almost immediately, as, as you were bringing up, even going back to ancient Rome, um, it, it, it really stopped me in my tracks because, I mean, that is like some really shocking stuff to see the echoes of what we're dealing with now that we're told is unprecedented that we've never seen before, we've never dealt with, to see that it has just always been with us and has always been used for these purposes. And there's a whole bunch of people behind the curtain in like the Wizard of Oz who benefit from it, who have funded it. And that goes back throughout time too, whether it's even the Revolutionary War based on a crazy conspiracy, the Civil War around the turn of the century trying to get rid of FDR. It's always been here. It's amazing to me, the consistency of it. Your book pointed that out for people that love history. Yeah. And, and you know, that it's an important thing because, you know, you and I could get on here right now and, and my God, how many podcasts and how many conversations and how many cable news segments and how many posts are constantly talking about, oh, Ted Cruz went out and said this or, you know, uh, or Ron DeSantis or Donald Trump. And it's always focusing on these individuals, right? Like there's a passion play between these characters and politics. But what often goes unexamined is that these things like the Republican Party, uh, Ted Cruz, Ron DeSantis, Donald Trump, they're oftentimes just figures that stand in representation and present these conspiracy theories and ideas on behalf of people that most people don't know. Uh, you know, Koch brothers, the Bradleys, the DeVosses. Um, and, and these people, and, and to go ahead and give an example for, for your listeners, you know, you hear all of a sudden out of nowhere, the Republican Party starts talking about critical race theory. They start talking about groomers and indoctrination in public schools. And suddenly you start having like these battles, you know, on the local level where, you know, parents are showing up and saying, don't teach my kids CRT. Don't, you know, don't, uh, you know, try to sexually abuse my children. Well, the truth is that 
that is being funded by those wealthy billionaires, by those wealthy donors. And it's there's like this entire universe of think tanks and institutes and groups that cook these things up and direct them. And what is actually happening is it's not born out of an actual organic fear of your children being taught CRT or the, or the teachers being groomers or whatever. What's actually occurring is that this is an incredible weapon that the wealthy can use to destroy public education. Um, they can, you know, basically take over local school boards. They can drive teachers out of the profession. They can create a, uh, a situation where public education is so endangered that the only alternative is to privatize it, right? Is to go ahead and make sure that those wealthy people, and they are waiting in the wings, to go ahead and ba basically corporatize public education, which, you know, you say, well, is it because they're really interested in educating people? No. It's a trillion multiple trillion dollar industry in the waiting. Um, it, it it will just absolutely line their pockets in a way that most people had never even considered before. But those conspiracy theories are the stories that make it possible for them to go ahead and push their power forward. Really, it's so they can control the whole system and just turn us all into serfs and then they have the elites. And if you're looking for their origin document, just go read the Powell memo. Yeah, and the Pell Memo, to go ahead and give people a little bit of a background on this, you know, in, in the 1960s and 1970s, um, you know, everyone is obviously aware of the counterculture, the civil rights movement, the feminist movement, the free speech movement, uh, the gay rights movement. We have this moment in the 60s and 70s where there is a possible social revolution. And in many ways, there are revolutionary moments, right? We, of course, see civil rights move forward. We see some things change in society. But in in essence, it's it's almost a failed revolution, right? Eventually, on the other side of it, uh, the wealthy sort of get together and they're like, "Listen, um, the 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 shit hit the fan there, and we barely survived." Like these anti-capitalist ideas, um, you know, this counterculture really presented a threat. We need to start pooling our money and our resources. We need to get serious about this. And so what they do, uh, they take a page out of the books of corporations such as the fossil fuel industry, which I think you know this and maybe your listeners do too, knew that they were causing climate change in the 1950s, right? They knew full and well that they were, but they created alternate facts and alternate experts to go ahead and say that they weren't. Uh, the tobacco industry, of course, knew that they were causing cancer in their customers for forever, but they you know, got alternate experts, alternate realities for their own purposes. And they went about creating their own alternate structure of the world. They started buying out uh, universities. They started uh, paying off scientists and studies in order to, you know, say this or say that. They basically started creating their own alternate reality. The wealthy did. And what we're seeing now is this pushing forward of the power that they have uh, institutionalized and that they have grown over and over again to create what you said which is a surf class. Um, what we're looking at, and this is an alarmist, this is something that you know we're seeing uh, take place day after day. We're looking at children who are basically being raised up in a prison-like environment in public education where school shootings have gotten so bad that um, the only alternative, instead of, I don't know, taking care of the problem of gun violence or mental health in this country is to turn schools into prisons and give everyone a gun. And hopefully, you know, there'll be a shootout that will solve the problem. And then on top of it, you know, we're, we're even seeing groups of students and, and children who are now being used for labor, 
And if we can go ahead and get rid of things like public education, which, um, you know, the, the wealthy in the past were completely against because they wanted their factories and their mills and their uh, their mines labored over by children, um, we can get to the point where all of a sudden we will have a natural hierarchy again, which is what the right is absolutely interested in. It's the idea that some people are better than others naturally, and that those people should go ahead and serve them because that's the natural order of the world while the wealthy and the powerful are given their, their lives of luxury. So a lot of this is about rolling back the progress of the 20th century while creating a permanent underclass that will take care of the labor and also make sure that that, uh, that system of inequality continues to perpetuate itself. I just read a biography on Hitler, and he almost had the same view word for word. It reminds me of Animal Farm, where all animals were created equal, except some were more equal than others. That's all of the same stuff. It's white supremacy, really, which I always felt is the true religion of America, and it migrated over from Europe. But that's really something that's been here since day one. And it's like we're doing everything we can to never see it, talk about it. We're trying to ban it. We say it's a lie. And even if it's true, we shouldn't teach it. It's all these conflicting things. Why is the truth so terrifying to the myth? Well, if the myth was destroyed, what would happen to America? Well, and this is the hard thing, right? It's, it's, it is hidden completely. Um, you know, I, I grew up in the 1980s. Um, you know, I, I grew up during the, the Reagan era during, um, you know, sort of the, the swan song of American exceptionalism. And it was so easy for a while to not have to look at what actual history was right? Like you, you didn't, you didn't really need to, like, it just felt like things were working. And then all of a sudden something very strange started happening in the United States, which is that, um, you, you suddenly realize that the, the myth of the American dream, which is actually just a really gussied up, um, meritocracy myth, the idea that anybody, if they work hard enough, if they're talented enough can, you know, have a better life than the people who came before them. Um, we start realizing, oh, that's kind of bullshit. Like, I'm not even able to like go to college at this point without taking on, you know, uh, several tens of thousands of dollars worth of debt. And then I got out of college and it's like, you can't find a job that can actually help you afford anything. So what happened was the illusion that that myth that you're talking about, it started flickering. And so now we're living in a time where all of a sudden we're starting to take different looks at things. That's one of the reasons why I wrote The Midnight Kingdom or American Rule is because we needed to start taking a look at actual history and facts so we could understand how we had arrived at this moment. Because the only way to, to move forward is to understand how you've arrived at where you're at. Well, so what we're at now is this moment of crisis where you either learn from the past and you create a different future, or, and this is, of course, you know, you, you were bringing up the, the idea of Adolf Hitler. And, you know, a lot of people always sort of flinch when you bring up Hitler, but it's important to learn from people like this. People like Hitler, authoritarians, fascists, Nazis, you name it. They come along at a moment where those mythologies of, of you know, how the world is supposed to work, how they're flickering, you know, they're, they're starting to fall apart. And then you come along people who say, well, you either believe this or we'll kill you. Right. Or we'll use our, our weaponry and our uh, we'll, we'll, we'll use our strength to go ahead and make you believe it. That's where we've arrived again, is that those old illusions are losing their power and their weight. 
And so they're either going to give way to a new structured reality or authoritarians are going to force us to believe them again. And the the sad truth, and you know, you brought up Animal Farm, but a, another book, of course, is 1984 by George Orwell. Yeah. What we learn from these tomes is that there, to believe how the world works, it, it can be influenced by force and intimidation, right? Um, you know, we're we're seeing now authoritarians who are using the power of the state to take away books, to take away uh, contrasting information, critiques of the power structure. And basically anybody who tries to stand up to it uh, is going to face, you know, lengthy prison sentences, uh, financial penalties, you name it. And that is only going to grow as these authoritarian movements gain more and more power. It's about going ahead and reforming the old basis of bases of this power. And that is how white supremacy has worked for the entire history of the world. It really sounds like colonialism meshed with Christian fascism, which blessed colonialism, turned inward, cannibalizing itself, which is the inevitable outcome. Yeah. And, and you know, to go ahead and, and to put this into context, you know, what we find over and over in history, and this is something else I found writing the Midnight Kingdom, is that when you are part of, of an empire, let's say that you are, I don't know, an American. And, you know, you're growing up again in the 1980s, the 1990s. You are benefiting from a structure that is built upon the exploitation of people that you'll never meet. Right. There are people all around the world who have been put into the American system of neoliberal globalism, um, you know, so-called second and third world countries where, you know, there's probably a leader who is a dictator and authoritarian who, by the way, is given uh, carte blanche and blessing by the United States of America because he keeps the populations in order. Um, the, the people are made to labor for cents on the dollar, their resources are taken from them and they whip together products that, you know, we can buy for cheap. Um, you know, I'm sitting here talking to you on a laptop that includes elements from around the world that, uh, were, were harvested basically on the blood and bones of, of poor people around the world. I've got my phone over here. The only reason I can afford this magical device is because it's harvested from these countries where people are exploited. The problem, though, is that capitalism always has to have more and more profit. It has to have sustained growth. So eventually, it's not enough that you're exploiting those people, that you're getting these cheap resources and cheap labor. Eventually, you need more. And what has happened is that these corporations and the wealthy who have benefited from this new consensus, they've essentially outgrown the nation state. They've basically corrupted the governments, the representative governments that are supposed to control them. As a result, the American laborer is now going to be exploited more and more. There's not going to be enough of these luxuries and enough of these resources to go around. It always has to dwindle and dwindle and dwindle. And I'm glad that you brought up colonialism because this goes back even to the ages of going around the world and taking on the Aztecs or the Mayans. What you actually find is that those empires, eventually the violence of colonialism always turned inward. The tactics that they used in far-flung lands on people of color and indigenous people always ended up coming back to the homeland and being put upon the citizenry. It happens to be that we're dealing with another one of those cycles right now, and the United States of America, we're starting to feel the pinch from it. That's why I said it was inevitable in the old phrase, live by the sword, die by the sword. It has to come that way because 
the snake eats its tail. It's insatiable, endless growth, endless consumption on a finite resource planet shared by 8 billion people. You, you probably figured out if you were in sixth grade or fifth grade. Yeah, it's it's a very, very simple uh, paradigm, really. And, and it keeps playing itself out. And, and And I hate to say that, but it's, you know, from the very first corporations, which were created in order to carry out the the authority of, of nation states and empires, one after another, they would go out, they would subjugate a group of people, they would exploit them, they would carry out genocides and, you know, enslavement. And then inevitably, they would come back and take over the legislatures of the countries that birthed them. This is always how it has happened. It just so happens that we are ignorant of this almost out of choice. We don't want to admit that this is true. We don't want to see that it's taken place because honestly, what we're talking about is horrific. It, it really is truly a horror because the definition of horror is believing that you are safe when you have been endangered the entire time. And, and, and if you take a look at what is actually occurring uh, both in the United States of America and around the world where this international authoritarian movement is gaining strength and power, we're all in incredible danger. Like uh, this thing is, it, it, you use the right word, it's insatiable and it has to be defeated rather than hoping that it will somehow or another put itself to rights. You can't negotiate with it. it's a sociopathic parasite cancer paradigm. It's interesting you said too that we don't want to know. I was thinking we don't want to see how the sausage is made. We don't know what goes on with our food and how destructive and poisonous and cancer causing it is. We don't want to see people jumping out of windows at Foxcom in China so we can have cheap phones or gizmos or you know, flip lighters or whatever it is. We would rather not know. We want to stay in our benevolent ignorance and believe that the whole world lives at the top and that everybody has the same access and that m the people we put in power through the ages from Marcos uh, it, in the Philippines or the Shaw, we give them these crazy titles, the Panamanian Nor Noriega, they're all just Hussein. They're all CIA operatives. And a lot of their, the whole thing is trained at Fort Benning in Georgia. We are the empire. We are Darth Vader. We are the emperor but we would rather not know it. That's the, it's so hard too, Jared, when the, the blinders come off. And like you said, it is hidden from us. I'm still finding out stuff at this stage of my life about Wilmington, Delaware, or so many other massacres like Tulsa or things we did to the native Americans or communities or things we did around the world. I'm like, how did I miss this? And I've been in libraries and in bookstores my whole life. It's, like I'm an investigative reporter, but that's not an accident. Uh, people, it's a combination of it's kept from us, but also we're benevolent and we really don't want to know. So it's a good marriage so that we can go to the mall and, you know, buy stuff. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things, and, and it took me a while to get here and maybe it was my own naivete, but, you know, I, for a very long time, I wanted to believe that espoused principles were real. Right. Um, you know, one of the issues I, I found in my research is that authoritarianism and oppression, it has almost always been on a foundation of um, basically middle white class groups of people uh, turning a blind eye to the consequences of their privilege.
Um, you know, going back to the idea of Adolf Hitler, you know, we we were fed this story, and I, you know, this is a conventional history. Everything from documentaries to books to movies, the idea was that oh man, Hitler just spoke so well, Paul, and like people were just so hypnotized by what he said. And in truth, that's not what it was. You know, a lot of the people in Germany saw him as an absolute brute, but they were excited for somebody to fight the communists and socialists so that they could maintain their power and privilege. And so what you actually find is that groups of people who have a, a modicum of, of wealth, who have a little bit of power, um, you know, even if they're saying, oh, I'm for civil rights, I'm for voting rights, I, you know, I, I think that black lives matter or, you know, the gay and trans lives matter. It, a lot of them, when the rubber hits the road um, and it's a choice between their own comfort and the safety and dignity of others, they will uh, uh, absolutely sacrifice the latter. And what we're looking at right now is a situation in the United States and around the world as well. Um, and, you know, I, I, I want to say this before I begin. I still remain incredibly hopeful. I really, truly am, and I'm optimistic for a variety of reasons, but one of the most concerning trends that I have seen over the past couple of years is that groups of people who consider themselves the resistance or anti-Trump or, you know, uh, you know, dyed the wool, uh, you know, liberals have started to embrace and normalize the activities of people like Ron DeSantis. Uh, they've started to engage in culture wars against, quote unquote, wokeness or CRT. They've discussed sacrificing gay and trans people and, and certain parts of the population. And what you find is that true revolutions usually happen when a group of people that are being exploited force a group of comfortable citizens to confront the, the consequences of their privilege. Case in point, the civil rights movement. Um, you know, again, people want to believe that the civil rights movement happened because Martin Luther King gave a great speech, you know, and suddenly things changed. Well, no, that's not what happened. In large part, it happened because of the advent of television and mass media. And you had a group of civil rights marchers and, and, and activists who made people confront white supremacy up front in their faces. And we can't just rely on these things, again, to solve themselves. Um, you know, culture tends towards the selfish, and that's by design. It has happened all along. This is why we don't get the facts of history, but also why all of our uh, sort of nodes of culture trend towards self-interest. You have to have a an intentional battle against this stuff. We require a sea change. We require a complete change of the mind, the body, and the soul in order to get this ship righted and in a different direction. Otherwise, this thing is just going to continue to get worse. You really opened a beautiful window and door there. What's going to have to happen, and we've had a lot of great spiritual leaders, teachers on the show through the years, we need a transformation first of consciousness. And that starts with inside of you and me. That's what we can do in the listener. God bless you all around the world. And then when there's enough of that, when we see ourselves more connected and that it matters what happens all over the place for all of us, because if none of us are safe, the, I mean, if some of us are not safe, then none of us are safe and that we're all connected rather than these selfish little isolated units trying to get what scarce resources we can before it all collapses, that this is all there is. Now, if we do that, we will create what we're afraid of. It will collapse. But there has to be a transformation in that, I feel like, what you're talking about. 
and then turned in action, not just meditating. Yeah. And, you know, this is one of those things I talk about a lot. You know, whenever I'm uh, doing a podcast or I'm talking with groups of people, you can feel the anxiety and the fear. And there's a good reason for that. You know, conditions are worsening. But it always begins, and we were talking about this a little bit before we started recording. A lot of times it feels like you are up against an immovable machine. And and that's intentional, by the way. Uh, this age of administration was intentionally created, uh, in the in the words of one of the worst United States presidents of all time, Woodrow Wilson, to mm. be a, to be amazed that people look upon and wonder, right? And that there there's no way that they could possibly change it. It's better if specialists and technocrats just go ahead and take care of it, and you can just go about your life and buy things. Um, you know, neoliberalism as a political ideology believed that people were too stupid and inept and order to run the world. It was better if democratic operations were ceased. And as a result, people would simply vote with their dollars. And what has happened because of austerity, because of worsening conditions and worsening uh, exploitation, we have become what some people would refer to as homo economicus, right? Which are uh, economic creatures who are simply worried about our own existences. And by the way, um, and, and I'm so sorry, this is always uh, what I think is a really good example of this is the television show Survivor, right? Um, for anybody who hasn't watched it, just real quick, it is a television show where a bunch of strangers are put on an island. They're tasked with creating a quasi-civilization. And the, the person who plays the game the best ends up winning the game. Well, what happens on Survivor is one minute you'll see one of the contestants talking to another contestant and making promises and building alliances. And then that contestant will do like a cutaway to the camera and tell the audience how they have lied. Right. And how they're manipulating someone. That is a representation of how the world is now constructed. We are told that we are all trying to get one over on one another. We're all trying to screw each other in every way, shape or, uh, and form. It makes us paranoid and distrustful. It makes us feel like we can't rely on anybody else, including our family, our friends, our neighbors, our communities. And as a result, it's a dog-eat-dog -dog world, a zero-sum game theory existence in which there is no chance or possibility of building something of substance with other people. The problem is, and again, we're on a show called What Matters Most, that there's no substance to that. That is a, that is a, a irrefutably hollow and empty existence. And we see that the people who win are miserable. Donald Trump did us an invaluable service. Elon Musk is doing us an invaluable uh, service. We are seeing some of the wealthiest and most powerful men in the world, and they are absolutely miserable because there is no winning the game. There is nothing of substance to that. If we are going to actually make a better world, we're going to have to reject that zero-sum, dog-eat-dog, uh, distrustful, paranoid existence, and we're going to have to rediscover something of substance. And, you know, we had talked about it before we began this podcast. You know, is that spiritual? Maybe. That doesn't mean it's religious. It means believing that there's something more important than that back-and-forth bullshit. But it, it has to happen if we are going to change course because neoliberalism, authoritarianism, you name it, it eats off of and grows larger with the idea that we are alone and that we are powerless to do anything besides consume and grow our own in terms of, of, of material conditions. We, we have to reject that. We have to find something better. I think we will. 
And I think that we have to. We're watching it sort of start to churn and grow right now. But that's literally the only antidote to what we're going through. Perfectly said. The solution lies in each other and community and connection, service, going beyond the ego and the self. It doesn't work. And I know people personally, sadly, you can't find it in the illusionary world. There's a balance. You don't want to be starving to death. And Trump was, oh, my God, what a great teacher, the great awakener. And everybody wants to pin it on him. I felt he was just a very minor symptom you know, the, to the cause that these powers that be that created everything and that it created this global trillion dollar grift where everybody's aggrieved and send money for this cause and that. And then none of it goes anywhere. And the grift is not just on the right, but on all of it, whether it's the stupid New York Times, which I personally hate and yeah, with its dumb headlines and it's not progressive or anything like that. It's so pro corporate pro war, but it, it, I like what you pointed out that, it's all out there on the buffet. Will we be able to put the puzzle pieces together and solve this? And you are hopeful for the record, which is good. And I think be hopeful, do the best you can play the game. And then that's all you can do. Then the larger outcome is out of our hands. But if enough of us did that, we might have a better shot. We would. Well, yeah, if you take a look at revolutionary scenarios, it always begins with groups of people who figure out that they can trust one another, and then it starts to change the the paradigm itself. I mean, one of the reasons, and, and not to get, you know, a little too woo-woo here, but like, we, we create the reality we live in. And, you know, there are these moments, and I think people, and I think people felt this, you know, most recently, probably uh, during the Black Lives Matter protest. You wouldn't, you get enough people on the same page looking at a problem that seems intractable and immovable, it suddenly starts to feel like things are malleable. Now, going back to the 1960s, 1970s, this failed social revolution, you know, there there was a momentum there that at any moment could have actually pushed the thing, you know, over the hump. Like there could have been a moment. It was in the United States. It was in Europe. It was around the world. There was a decolonization movement. It felt like we were at the precipice of something really, really important. Unfortunately, American materialism and self-interest eventually ended up sort of letting the bottom fall out of the whole thing. But that's yeah. a that's a different podcast altogether. Um, I will say very quickly. On the note of being optimistic and hopeful, there is a lot of money made to be made by selling people false hope. Um, one of the problems in all of this is telling people, oh, don't worry, um, you know, Robert Mueller is coming in to save the day. Uh, James Comey will save the day. Merrick Garland will save the day. Don't worry. There's a plan. Everything's going to work out. You just have to be patient. Um, that is not what's needs to have that's not what needs to happen uh what needs to happen is that we need to go ahead and start reclaiming uh the the notions of democratic action um for the record democracy is more than going to a voting booth every two to four years uh it is more than sending in a check to a political campaign or retweeting something on twitter um we have let a lot of really nefarious forces and dangerous forces take over everything from local government to regional government to the national government. We have to change the way that we interact with the world and the way that we interact with one another. It begins with reckoning with ourselves, which is something that I personally am, am looking into in terms of everything from therapy and self constant self-evaluation of why I'm doing the things that I'm doing. 
Um, I think we can all benefit from that, but also it involves the beginning of solidarity and intimacy. We have to start trusting one another. We have to start working with one another. We have to start looking around and realizing, and this goes back to the idea of spiritual, that there is something in all of us that recognizes all of us. There is some spark of humanity or selfness or whatever you want to determine it, and it doesn't have to be religious. There is something that when you look in the eyes of another person, you recognize them as a living, breathing person with their own background, their own hopes, their own dreams, their own humanity. And we have to stop working against one another and sacrificing one another, or else we're going to look up, like you were saying, and realize we have not only sacrificed others, we've eventually sacrificed ourselves and we've sacrificed the future. And I try to look at each person and say, but for the grace of God go I in any direction, that if I had their life, I had their influences, if I had their parents and their hardships, how would I be any different? Think about it. One of my says, I'm not superior. I got a certain hand dealt to me. I was born with very loving parents, not perfect, in a certain time, and was taught to read early, encouraged. And now I get, for the last 10 years, get to talk to people like you three, four times a week and read books. And that's a unique privilege. Now I can be arrogant about it or very humble by it and then try to be exceptionally compassionate towards people who maybe are working a couple of jobs or had none of that or what happened to them. I don't know. But if I can approach them with an open hand rather than a closed fist and a curious mind that's seeking to understand rather than be understood and wanting to connect i have found that for me this is this has been magical I, i've been able to go to rallies for all kinds of right-wing stuff and not, of course i don't wear an obama shirt but i just listen and i've been treated so kindly and i've learned a lot and i've i've never met anyone i i didn't like and i didn't feel a connection to well and i think that's beautiful and and i think that when you really look at it so i i, I come from a, a very rural very poor background uh, and and I, you know, I, I as a child, like I suffered just every kind of abuse imaginable. And so as a result, like I've I've sort of been able to come at this from a background where I have to sort of view where people come from, what it is that that leads to them doing some things that at times are absolutely horrific. You know, I I'm surrounded by people that I love and communities that I care about that have absolutely gone down the the rabbit hole of everything from Trumpism, Mogism to QAnon and, and, and so on and so forth. And what I keep coming around to is the fact that we're having conversations and, and, you know, this is the same thing as on an interpersonal relationship level. You know, if you've ever found yourself arguing with a loved one about something, you've realized that you're not really arguing about the thing you're arguing about. There's something deeper that you're not talking about, right? It's a representation of it. When we're talking about QAnon, when we're talking about red versus blue, Democrat versus Republican, we're not actually discussing those things. Those obscure the actual conversations that we need to be having. And yes, what I'm talking about here is mental wellness. I'm talking about being both aware of what it is that you're discussing and what it is that you fear and what it is that you want. But we do not live in a society that that uh, necessarily, uh, you know, treasures that or promotes that. 
We're in the middle of a mental health crisis in this country where you have one side that is screaming, like you said, oh, they're eating babies. They're, you know, they're hurting children. That's not what's happening. That's a metaphor for, you know, people being sacrificed for economic inequality. Um, we could be having conversations about redistributing wealth or what we should do with manufacturing. I don't know how we should regulate locomotives, you know, carrying dangerous chemicals. Or in one of the most like recent but also telling examples, should we regulate gas stoves, right? Should, you know, gas stoves obviously cause, based on scientific studies, it causes, you know, asthma in children and environmental effects. Should we do something about that? Instead, we're having conversations about people being herded into FEMA camps, right? And so what we're actually doing at this point is we're in a cycle of miscommunication, um, continuing uh, perpetual abuse and misunderstanding. And what we actually need to do is, you know, what some would refer to as a moment of clarity, which is a realization that things have gotten so far off track and they have moved so far away from what actually matters and what's actually going on that it needs a reset. Right. That it's time to restart, de-escalate, and have a conversation that is actually about what's at hand. But it just so happens that when you get in uh, these cycles, whether or not it's a culture war in the United States or a burgeoning Cold War with China or this crisis that was started in Ukraine with, you know, a dictator's invasion, like what you find yourself in are cycles that grow worse and worse and worse as that sort of clarity moves away. And we have to get to the point where we start having actual conversations about actual things as opposed to these made-up stories and a bunch of bullshit. And that reset is coming one way or the other, and it's going to be how painful do you want it to be? And the sooner we deal with it, the more consciously we deal with it, the more compassionately we, we deal with it, the easier it'll be. Or it's going to be draconian, but it's coming. No matter what kind of hopium you're smoking or happy talk you believe, it's inevitable. The whole thing is going to collapse. How can we manage this collapse and how can we make it less catastrophic? To me, that just seems like, is that going to win out or is it going to have to fall on everybody? And then we'll we'll try to clean it up from there. Well, you know, it's, it, as you were saying that, that just brought to mind something. Um, you know, a, a few years ago, I had this like tooth. I had like this toothache. Um, have you ever had, you ever had toothache? Oh, the worst thing ever. It'll ruin your life. That's all you can think about. If you listen, if you're listening to this podcast and you've never had to go through this, I mean, it is, it, it's all consuming. Uh, you know, if they get really bad, like your life will grind to a halt. You know, I, I had a, I had this tooth and it just hurt and hurt and hurt. And, you know, if I was being rational, I knew I needed to go to the dentist and probably end up getting a root canal, right? Which is what happened, by the way. Eventually, I was going to get that root canal. And instead, you know, I told myself a bunch of stories. It was like, oh, I'm sure maybe it'll go away tomorrow. You know, if I if I do this, if I do that, suddenly it'll go away. And the pain just got worse and worse until, you know, it was absolutely unlivable. And I had to go sit outside of a dentist office and wait for them to open. You know what I mean? And and just and and this was an emergency root canal that I could have avoided a lot of pain. I could have avoided a lot of suffering. And meanwhile, if I was being rational about it, I would have taken care of it. We are heading towards a collapse of some type. And the the question now 
is do we go ahead and recognize using another, you know, mixing another metaphor, do we do we recognize that there is an iceberg in the distance and we steer the ship uh, to, you know, minimize our chances of an abs- absolute collapse? Or do we go ahead and put pedal to the metal and go exactly right at the iceberg? The problem is that fascism, Nazism, authoritarianism, it is a death drive. Right. It is it is a denial of facts. It is a reestablishment of mythologies and lies that were used again to sort of salve the soul. You know, they, these are movements that are about self-destruction. You know, you can either deal with the demise of American um, hegemony. You can either deal with it in a way that like actually makes things work a little bit better, makes it a little bit more fair, tamps down the opportunity for nuclear war and environmental destruction, or you can go ahead and just, you know, hold your nose and dive deep, deep, deep into the abyss and make things even worse. That's what authoritarianism is. It is a doubling, a tripling, a quadrupling down on circumstances that if you were thinking rationally, you would recognize as a road to disaster. And and the choice has never been more clear. Bingo. And if you look at every movement, that's how it ends. Catastrophically, nuclear warheads falling in Japan, Berlin, Germany completely decimated, Rome, environmental struggles. Hey, how did you get out? What was the element of grace, luck, synchronicity, Will, given everything you were raised in, went through, surrounded by, uh, why did that aspect of you somehow still rise to the surface? And it's still obviously treading water to keep rising. Have you ever figured it out? I mean, you're doing the inner work. Is there uh, anything you might say that perhaps someone who's listening might catch a uh, a lifeline for? Well, you know, I, I spend a lot of time, um, you know, when I really reflect on what the what my past was, you know, I, I'm really, really lucky that I didn't spiral into some sort of all consuming life altering addiction or, you know, violence or, or you name it. I mean, I, I, I think all the time about a lot of the factors that were in place. I could have very easily fallen into the clutches of the far right. I could have very easily, you know, become an extremist in these times. Like, I, I, I don't think that that is uh, so far out of the imagination. I was very lucky for a few things. Um, one, I, despite going through a ton of abuse, I had a couple of people in my life, such as my grandfather um, and my mother, who were kind to me, who, who reassured me, who would give me moments of solace and would encourage me to think for myself and to, to question things. Um, you know, along the way, I had a couple of teachers, things like that. And, and the entire reason I bring that up is not, you know, that people can rewind their lives and suddenly, you know, uh, be an authority figure in their lives or something or, you know, find somebody who could. I think the importance to learn from is that cycles of trauma and abuse can be ended. You know, it is bad things can happen, but we can go ahead and make sure that the cycle ends with us. And there's a there's a saying within the trauma informed community, which is, you know, hurt people, hurt people. And you can make choices to not hurt people. You can make choices to be a figure for other people that that, you know, keeps them from falling off the side of these things or falling into terrible situations. I find to a person when I know somebody who goes down the QAnon rabbit hole, who goes down the the right wing authoritarian MAGA rabbit hole, I find to a person, Paul, that they're suffering. 
and they're lost. Something has happened in their lives, whether it's economic, a marriage falls apart, something is going on in their lives. And these are the things that give them meaning. And a lot of it is because they're lonely and because they feel powerless. And if we're able to let them know that they're not alone and we let them know that there are people there for them who care about them, it could make the difference. And that's a that's a really important thing to keep in mind. It's amazing the power of kindness of a few people be a light in someone's sky, like my Angelo said, and you never know the impact you can have. And what you said is also true. I found that when I went to those rallies or I met people that were hardline or QAnon or whatever, when I asked them how they were doing, they didn't want to talk about politics. They told me about their pain, their suffering, the bad break they got, the fact their job moved overseas, uh, the fact that they are hooked on Oxycontin or their son died of you know, oxy and why are the Sacklers, they wouldn't be able to put in that that context, but they felt they had been deeply wounded by the machine and they were looking for answers. And unfortunately, the wrong people were giving them lies to kind of set them off on the other people who were marginalized and hurt. But really it was a personal pain. It wasn't like a bunch of us sitting around at a table at a good dinner talking politics or capitalism or Howard's Zinn. It was, they were deeply wounded and they were right in that it was unjust. Well, and, and a lot of what's happening in this, um, you know, when you talk about something like QAnon, QAnon is a story and QAnon is a story that gives people meaning, which is, you know, what a lot of religions are for people. You know, you and I can sit here and have this conversation. I'm able to have this conversation because I took on tens of thousands of dollars of student debt. I was given the resources I need needed and the uh, uh, instruction on how to piece those things together, put together research and and start to understand larger complex problems and sim, you know synthesize answers. You have done the same thing. You have talked with so many people, started to put together all these different ideas. When people talk about people in in so-called red state America or heartland or or flyover country, they they treat them like they're stupid, right? How could they believe these things? Well, for a lot of them, they don't have access to these resources. They don't have the instruction on putting these things together. And quite frankly, there aren't a lot of people who are able to talk to them about these things and, and actually start to give them an idea of what has happened. Neoliberalism is a complicated thing. American hegemony is a complicated thing. Instead of having a political movement that will discuss this with them, they have a faux populist political movement. And that's what Trumpism is. That's what the Republican Party is. They go out and they say, you have been wrong. And they have been wrong. They have been let down. They have been sacrificed. Like you just said, something like the opioid epidemic, like you don't have to understand the the finances of these things and the economic uh, incentives of these things in order to understand that something somewhere went wrong and somebody should have protected them and somebody should have made sure that this didn't happen. And that betrayal is real. They have been betrayed. It just so happens that a bunch of charlatans who can make money off of them and also use them for their political purposes have gotten to them and they have uh, uh, motivated them into a faux populist movement. Um, but it doesn't mean that they won't listen to reason. One of the good things about what we're talking about here is it's true and it feels true and it feels good uh, to, to know what is actually going on, which is why Trumpism to an extent was so infectious because it had the ring of truth to it, even if it was a lie down at its very, very core. 
And so when we talk about this, we we have to understand that there are ways out of this situation, but you have to be willing to empathize. You have to be willing to communicate and you have to be willing to go out there with a group of people that maybe you'd rather not talk to and maybe you'd rather not have uh, relationships with. But uh, the future kind of depends on us starting to talk to people that we wouldn't otherwise talk to. And you definitely feel hope in your heart it's not manufactured you do feel like we're going to figure this out i don't think it's going to be easy <laughs> I, I i you know i i said back in 2016 when i was like reporting from trump rallies i said in an article and i think about this all the time we will be extremely lucky if massive amounts of blood aren't shed and I think that we are still looking at a very, very dangerous situation. Uh, God knows how many people are going to suffer and be hurt. But I got to tell you, um, humanity pushes back against this stuff. Uh, humanity fights for freedom. Uh, you know, it, it. We and by the way, we've been responsible for the worst things in history. I mean, that's that's you know another thing that we have to carry around. Uh, but I also think we're starting to see signs that. Not only are people questioning that reality that we started off this conversation talking about, but they're starting to work together to challenge it. And that working together, that solidarity, that coming together, I think, again, that's the antidote. And I think we're going to see the, a pushback that is going to change things in the long run. You've been listening to the What Matters Most podcast, a 100% listener-supported program. If you feel inspired, please go to our Patreon page at www.patreon.com backslash whatmattersmost and join our family. So until the next time, stay inspired and in the light. <laughs>